All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bow Rush Podcast. I'm Scott Nelson. I'm Travis Stowe. So we are officially relaunched. You guys probably just listened to episode 45 with Joe Miles. Uh, Which was a great episode. Phenomenal one. I loved having him on. Uh, so this is 46. We have 47, 48 coming out right behind. So we are we are hot and heavy on on getting these out and really um, really trying to stay in better touch with uh, with the listeners. So 46, super blessed. Uh, we get to have Tommy Anarelli come on. Uh, chance meeting. I, I happen to be sitting at a uh, sitting at a bar watching a Georgia game a couple weeks ago, and uh, met a guy who started talking hunting and his best friend. Uh, was Tommy Agnarelli. So put me on the phone with him on the spot while we were sitting there. And now we're going to have a conversation with him. Tommy, a little background and heads up, this is a longer one of our podcasts, Mm -hmm. probably somewhere around two hours. Uh, Tommy loves to talk, and he's got some great stories. Uh, But Tommy's been in the industry for 20-plus years, has been hunting most of his life since he was a kid. And uh, he's done everything from the videography side to, um, you know, some some guiding stuff out and out in Africa, working with uh, some PHs and some exp- and some uh, some hunting groups that are out there. So we really run the gamut on our conversation here with him. Uh, again, super happy he was able to jump on with us today. Uh, so buckle up, sit in. This is uh, this is a good one, you guys. It'll be great. All right. Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing good. great. Thank you for this opportunity. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Tell, tell us Completely. a little bit of, about you. You know, who, 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 who are you? Where'd you start at? Yeah. So my name is Tommy Iannarelli. Um, I was born uh, and raised outside of Philadelphia. Uh, spent my summers in Philly. Um, and I always had a, a thing for the outdoors. Um, I was, um, when I was younger, my father worked um, at Philadelphia Electric in the city, and I would go down with him uh, at night, and he would go to different junkyards to get different parts for trucks and everything. He was a mechanic, um, and my dad got the bow at a young age, and he told me, he goes, hey, you should take it down one day. There's a lot of rats in the junkyards. Go have at it, Tommy, whatever, and they were joking around one day, and they said, uh, I was seven years old, and they said, every rat that you shoot, I'll give you a dollar. And, you know, this is back in the eighties. So I'm like, all right, you know, okay. <laughs> so that night I drugged back 30 rats. Now my mother freaked out because, uh, you know, I'm dragging rats back and my dad was like, Oh my God, I have to give him $30 now. So I did eat a lot of ice cream that summer because I had a lot of money. And <laughs> that's how I really got into my dad said, I got to get this kid into something. So he got me into boy scouts and he got me into shooting and archery and everything because I was just really into that as, as much as I was as a hyper kid, when it comes to hunting, for some reason, my body just focused and I can sit there for a long period of time and just and have at it. So growing up, I, I was in Boy Scouts. I became an Eagle Scout. I was really big on target shooting and everything involved with that. Um, I transitioned one. I was very I was blessed. One of my good friends uh, was Bob Walker of Walker's Game Year. And I always took an interest in his technology and um, because um, when I went to college, I uh, was in ROTC and I did a lot of shooting and everything. And I always my hearing, I always made sure I had ear protection because Bob used to teach me, you know, you do irreversible damage to your ears if you don't have hearing protection on there. So his device mm-hmm. would shut off. You could speak and you could hear people, but then it would it would muffle the sound of the of the shot. So it protect your hearing. 
So I worked with him on the technology side of it and the sales and packaging and everything. And this was during college and, and everything growing up. And then he said, he goes, you know, maybe you want to get into the video work. So he sent me to some video school training to do some video work for his hunting shows. Um, then I got into that and I really loved it because by every time I come back from the woods, I was like, Oh, this happened, that happened. But everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't prove it. <laughs> you know, guys. So I was like, Let me take a camera. <laughs> um, you know, something happens, uh, you know, you never know. So, um, I got into this side where I, all of a sudden I just took over and I wanted to get into this video work and I wanted to do this. And, and I was kind of, um, you know, overall I tried to learn technology, but that at the time, the cameras were just growing and growing It was 1080p and then this and then editing. And, you know, so I was trying to learn this on the side. Um, I ended up, um, I, through a couple friends, I got a couple jobs with Realtree, with Monster Bucks, with Michael Waddell, with Road Trips, and I did some video work for them. Um, and then nice. I said I, I went to a couple hunting shows and I met Jim Shockey. And I always I was like, you know, this is a guy I watched for years growing up, and Bob knew him and everything. And I said, you know what, I would love to get an interview with him to be one of his cameramen. Well, lo and behold, there's hundreds of cameramen that want to get with Jim because if you can videotape for Jim. You can videotape for anybody. You know, the guy is, is amazing and he demands the best out of you because he travels all over the world and, you know, it just, it, it brings your game up. So I uh, would go to shows and I'd meet him and I would always tell him like, Jim, like, give me a shot. Here's my card. You know, give me a call. And after a while I was like, what do I do? I met his wife at a show and she was in there when he was doing his presentation. And I went, Mr. Shockey, my, my name is Tommy. I said, here's my card. If Jim ever needs a cameraman, I, I live in, in Pennsylvania. I'll travel. I'm easy. I'm easy. Uh, just let me know. Like three weeks later, I'm driving and I get a phone call from Jim Shockey and he goes, hello, I'm interested in you. I'm like, wait, oh my God, this really happened. <laughs> so uh, I, he's like, you interview with the right person. He takes his wife's advice very, uh, very to heart. <laughs> so I, I did, it was just so happened she was sitting two weeks from me. So it worked out really good in the, in the presentation. So I go and we ended up shooting the world record gator in Florida. Okay. And I learned a ton from Jim. I mean, I must have videotaped guys out like probably 20, 30 hours that trip. We, we hunted boars, we hunted gators, we hunted everything. And Jim and I just got along really well. Um, I talked about my philosophy in the outdoors and why, you know, I'm, I'm really big on donating meat or anything to different areas of need um, to give it back. And, and that's how I was raised. Uh, my mother used to do a lot of different food organizations in Philadelphia and Chester um, and she used to set these whole food groups uh, where people would donate and people would come and pick them up. And we worked at soup kitchens growing up. And it was very important to me to, to do that. And it's always has been um, with the hunting space. And that's where um, Jim and I got along very well. We donated the meat and, and everything. Um, Jim liked my story growing up on how I got started in the hunting with the rats. And he used to laugh because like my grandmother's where I used to spend the summers, I think there was like six trees on the block and most uh, maybe two of them were tomato plants. There wasn't many, there wasn't much, uh, you know, land to hunt in in South Philadelphia, but we, I used to go down fishing a lot and just really enjoyed the outdoors. Um, so lo and behold, I, I went up to Saskatchewan and I videotaped in his hunting camps. And then um, I started doing a lot of freelance stuff. And my, uh, my one friend um, that I met at a show, his name's Steph Swanepoel. 
He knows the, um, the president at the time in, in early 2000 of Safari Club International. And my father and I said, you know what? We need to get over to Africa. You know, we need to try this one day. So we went and we got an auction hunt and we ended up going over there to Africa. And it changed my life, guys, in hunting, honestly. Um, it did something for me to understand who we were as Americans and what, how privileged we are over here and what we can offer and what we can really do in Africa. Africa is like untouched land. The smell of it, the, the campfire, the food, the people. It was like sitting down at an Italian Sunday dinner with, these, with, with South Africans. Everybody was just so inviting and they want to teach you. They want to educate you how to track. Um, so I started. Is it still like that? Excuse me? Is it still like that? It is. Like where, like what it, it was yeah. like when you first went and the way that you had that open, welcoming, heartfelt relationship that you built there. It, do you feel it's still like that today? 100%. If not, it, it gets stronger. I feel like every time I go over. Um, I, I've brought over 140 people over the last 15 years to Africa hunting wow. and every one of them, it has changed their lives. I've brought men over from, um, that lost their wives, um, uh, uh due to cancer and they were going to give up on hunting. They were going to sell their guns. They were going to do all, they were just so depressed. I said, listen, just come to Africa with me. They were my dad's friends. And when they got over there, they were like reborn whatever touched them in a way they came home next thing you know they're getting married two years later it like it, and these guys most of them were were veterans of war that have traveled the world and they found like an inner peace over there that you get in camp or when you're looking at nature that's never been touched it, it becomes something that is, is that changes your life and i can't express that much how much i brought my grandparents over there to in south africa um so over the years, guys, so what I did was I did a lot of video work over there. Um, I've done it with a lot of different hunting shows. I just brought a lot of, I put a lot of stuff on YouTube just to show what Africa is all about and what the people over there do and how important it is for like, the circle of life, as they would say it over there, why hunting is so important. Um, we started a lot of food programs over there that help. And I, you know, and being an Italian uh, cook myself, my grandmother taught me how to cook. I love to prepare food. So we would go over and hunt different species and we would prepare them to dry out the meat and package them, uh, seal them, and then bring them to different places, different villages everywhere. And we would just give it to them. And the, and that right there was just, and by the way, we always brought over, um, Hershey's chocolates. They love it over there. They love chocolate. Uh, so we always bring over, they have, don't get me wrong. They have amazing chocolate. Over, they love Hershey's. So we would always bring over Hershey bars for them. Um, but we would donate all this food and it was amazing. The, the respect that they gave us and the love, the hugs, everything. And, and it changes you as a person. You know, a lot of us take for granted over here. We shoot a deer, the outfit will butcher it up. You take the meat home, you eat it over the next year. Like some of these people over there, they need that food to survive. Um, so that takes, a, you know, if they don't have it, they have to work harder, which they're away from their children more. And then, you know, so... And this is such a key for them to have this. Um, so I really got into this over there and I made sure that we worked a lot on who we were donating to and everything. And I've been to Africa 27 times over my years. I've been there 27 times. I've met some amazing people. 
uh, the cultures, the hunting. Um, I mean, I've had a couple relationships with people that I brought over that were, uh, that had cancer and, um, and they never thought they would ever be able to afford to go to Africa. And I finally talked them into it. I'm like, listen, just go once with me. And they were in their eighties and it changed them. When they came back, they fought harder. They were like, I want to go back again. What can I do? You know, you know, all of a sudden now their demeanor, everything about them is different because of the experience. And we experience the same things a little different when you go to a hunting camp in the, in the United States for us, but people from South Africa, when they come over here and they go to an elk camp, you know, they're blown away by the food and the experience and everything about it. It changes people's, they just get so touched by the culture of it. And, and that's what really has brought me into this outdoor world um, is what it can do for, for people. It goes, it, it brings you back to put your cell phone down, put everything down, put the computer and just go and enjoy the outdoors. Go in and, and learn from these trackers that are the most, some of the most brilliant people out there. The way they track is, it, it blows my mind. Uh, it's almost like some guys, I'll be honest with you. My first animal ever shot was the warthog. And I have to tell you this. I was with my father. And I shot it with a bow. And I'm with this tracker. And the guy goes, don't worry, we'll find it. And it was getting dark. I'm like, we'll find it. Like, the thing's gone. Um, and then he ends up tracking it a mile and a half. And there's warthog tracks everywhere. And he says, see this one right here? See, it's dragging its foot a quarter of an inch. I'm like, a quarter of an inch? What are you talking? How can you even see that? But it didn't make sense to me back then. All right? I'm like, no way. He went on this track because it was a quarter inch dragging. And a mile and a half later, he found my warthog in the dark. And I was like, That's oh my crazy. God. It was something I couldn't believe. I'm like, sitting there, there's no way. And as the two weeks I stayed there, I really got to, to understand what, they're, what they were talking about and how and which way you go. And if you get on the wrong track, you're done. That animal's gone. The leopards, the hyenas are going to kill that, that animal. Like, animals in Africa, they don't lay down like our whitetails do when they're shot. They just keep running because they know if they lay down, the blood's going to puddle up and that, and that predator's going to come and they're gone. So we've tracked Impala six miles before. And, um, and, and these guys explain this to you and it, and it blows me away. Like I've taken my wife over there hunting and I had her and, and she hunted with me and she had a blast and we had so much fun and we had her tracking all day for an animal once. And she was like, and she appreciates that more than anything because she was a part of it. Um, you know, they don't just leave you at the blind and say, Hey, I'll come back when I get it. They want you a part of it and they bring you a part of the whole experience. Um, well, there's a lot of hunting shows out there and you've seen, um, you know, a lot based around, uh, around African hunts or exotic hunts. And we've had a lot of people on, it's probably been one of our, one of our most repeated topics is hunting in Africa, hunting big game. And you always see, you know people talking about the hunting piece of it then you see people talking about and explaining kind of the conservation side why do you think there's a loss in translation and and you really don't hear the experiences like what you're talking about you know the the actual vibe of being there and what you learn and the way that you interact we hear that from our guests that we talk to but you never see that in any of the tv shows or really many of the articles never dive into that personal side of it outside of you know the hunting aspect and the conservation aspect seems like there's a, a lot more it's like a director's in cut in perspective it's yeah. like yeah allowing them to have that opportunity but they don't ever get to show it yeah, why, why do 
think more people don't don't dive into that side of it because I, I feel like that's probably a, a, a pretty big piece of what it means to go hunt over there. No, and that's a great question. And my my feeling is this: if I only went over there two times, I probably would have never. I wouldn't be talking like I would now. I've had the opportunity to go over so many times and build my relationships up and see the whole grand scheme of Africa. When you, when most hunters go over there, even if they go over one or two times, they're there seven, 10 days hunting, want to shoot their animals. You know, it's almost like a race at times to make sure some, you know, you only sleep like four hours in Africa a night because you're so pumped. You want to get up and get in the blind and you want to get <laughs> night hunting. You don't sleep. Like, honestly, guys, you don't really sleep. I had a friend over there that videotaped the world record clip springer. It's a little small animal. He didn't even know what it was. Okay. He videotaped it. And the guy comes back when he showed him, he goes, that thing is the biggest one I've ever seen. He goes, Oh my gosh. He goes back to the blind later uh, the next day, never sees it. He spends like five days there and ends up getting it like in five days. He was so excited about it, but it's kind of like your question is a lot of people are focusing on, I got to get the biggest, baddest animals out there. And one, and I tell people when you go over there, just when they're with me in the hunting, take the, take a half a day. Let's go for a walk. Leave the gun here. Granted, you might, and most of the time they get mad because we see like a monster animal, but I will take the time with them to go to a different hunting park to drive through to see different animals, or I will take them to a blind one day and they think it's crazy, but I'll take them to certain blinds. And I said, listen, you're not, don't hunt. Just come in. Let's see this area. Let's see what the wildebeest do when they come in. Let's see what, the, what animals run off when they come into the water. Giraffes. If the giraffe starts shaking and its legs start shaking, it's nervous. But, you know, I want to teach them that stuff. And that's what you're I feel You're reprogramming like. them. Hmm? You're reprogramming them because they're initially coming out there with the agenda to kill something in perspective. But what you're doing is taking a step back and saying no be a part of this you're not taking an animal you're actually contributing and like you're really reprogramming the way they came down there for and allowing them to have a different type of experience exactly because that's what it's all about the animal on the wall is great don't get me wrong everybody loves to see it but for you to shoot something and prepare it and bring it somewhere and give it to somebody and to take care of them and to really see what what would land that was untouched you know the smell of the dirt even in the morning the smell of the firewood i try i wanted to import that wood because i would love to, to fire it up in my backyard just to smell because those smells trigger you know your brain to think of all the stuff that you did when you were over there and i've had guys that gone over that have been over there three four times with me because they just they just get hooked and now they know it's not about the hunt. The first time it's hard, guys. I'll be honest with you. They have guys over there that are like, I've been preparing for this for two years. I got to get the biggest of this or that. And I'm like, okay, let's do three days of that and then just come with me. Okay? Let's go for a walk. I want to show you an anthill that's 14 feet high. Um, you know, I want to show you a couple <laughs> things why this whole valley, trees are small because Cape Buffaloes came running through here years ago and destroyed the whole area. And now they're regenerating. You know, I want to show them the rivers where the hippos are and why. And how the hippos are one of the most dangerous animals and where they mark their territory that if people are harvesting mangoes, the hippos will go and kill them. We've had to put CITES permits on hippos because they were killing people in the mango fields during mating season. You know, and, and we have to bring that back and explain that why this has to be done. 
on things and why so many animals have to be taken out um, and everything. So there's a lot of knowledge behind this. And if people took the time and I have them read different books on it before they go over there, learn the territory, learn about the different um, tribes that were in these areas hundreds of years ago, they, before they go over, and that's what I try to tell everybody, learn about the area you're hunting in dive into this it'll mean so much more to you okay it's like we're very spoiled in philadelphia growing up i used to go to Philly all time the liberty bell everything all the places there all the history it was in my backyard so i didn't appreciate it i had friends from out west that would come more like oh my gosh i can't believe i'm here it's just like that when you go over there take the time learn the history um and sit there and, and, and bring it into you. It will reboot you. It will change you as a person. Because, when guys, I tell people all the time, when you're sitting in that campfire at night and having a drink and looking at the stars, why are we stressing about so much at home? Why do you stress about that text and this and that? Like, it's, we're only here so long. And I have to tell you this. I was in a camp once. I drove into a camp. I met a gentleman who was there, he was like 68 years old. And he was telling me a story and we got really close over a couple of days. And he said, you know, I have a brain tumor. And he said, I talked myself out of coming to Africa for 30 years. He said, I got five kids. He goes, um, I always talk myself out of it. And I'll get to it. It's, ah, it's way too much money. He told me he was a very wealthy man, but he just talked himself out of it. He had to, like, everything was a scorecard. You know, I have to get this and I have to get this property. And and he's sitting in camp with me going, oh, my gosh. He goes, you know, I might not see my animals that I've hunted. I might not see them because my, my, my cancer is so aggressive. And, uh, and then me talking to him, I thought, like, all right, he's going to go home and beat this and no problem and, and everything. When he went home six weeks later, he passed, I found out. And he never got to see wow. his animals. And it really triggered something in me. To be like, life is way too short, and we take a lot of it for granted. And even if we're not in hunting camp or anything, it translates to everything we do in life. Um, and I, I, myself, I lost my mother um, when I was 11 years old to breast cancer. And my sister and I and my father was a Vietnam vet um, who was dealing with a lot of PTSD as well with him. And we, were, we grew up without a mom, and it was really hard for us. And we... You know, a lot of pe people out there, I used to tell all my friends, you don't yell at your mother. You don't do you. You don't do that. You know, you don't know how lucky you are to have a mom there for you. And it, it like I learned at a very young age, life is very short and you take it all in and you you get up early. You only sleep four hours in Africa. So you're only there for 10 days. Let's go out and do something, you know, um, and I take that with me every day of life. And I translate that to to my family. And I try to teach that to all, all the people I do in hunting. Um, anywhere I go, I do. I, I speak about, you know, only here so long, guys. And I tell that story about that gentleman in camp because it really touched me. Like, I would have never thought that six weeks later he'd have been gone. And so he loved Africa. Do, do you think when someone comes there, Again, with the initial agenda, I paid for so much, I'm expecting to have the biggest whatever species they're going after. By the time they leave, is the trophy itself really what they care about that as much when they first arrive to when they leave? Like in a sense, 
you know, with us, we are kind of immersed in this world of, I have to have the biggest buck or the biggest antlers or whatever it is that they're going after for that showpiece, that insta, the impression that that's going to solidify what they did was so amazing. Do you feel like at the end of their trips, it really wouldn't matter if it's the biggest or the smallest because that's not really the most important aspect that came from it? Amazing question. So here's my whole thing, and I tell everybody this. Most people that sign up for Africa, they're do it years in advance or a year in advance. And all they do, they probably hit that guy's website or that hunting camp's website 150, 200 times before they get over there. And all they do is look at these monster bucks. And you're right. That's how we put a metric on if we're a really good hunter. It's sad, but if you're shooting a booner and you get in a book, then you did something. I'll be honest with you guys, a lot of it's luck. I know a gentleman that yeah. shot a booner that just walked in the woods, took a nap, woke up, and the thing was right in front of him, okay? Yes, there's a <laughs> lot of skill that goes involved, but all of a sudden, this guy got catapulted into, like, the best hunter because he has a booner in the book. He said, he goes to me, he said, I took a nap. I had my peanut butter and jelly on my lap. I woke up, the buck was right there. And he's not shy to say <laughs> that. Like, he's just like, it happened, you know? I yes, when people go over there, they want the biggest, the baddest. They want, and I say baddest because over there, those animals, they're tough. When I tell you they're tough, they are resilient. I've, I've, we've actually harvested animals that had bullets in them. A kudu with a thirty odd six shell lodged in its chest, and he was still running for years. I mean, they're bad animals Jeez. over there. Um, I do think that your first couple of days, because you want to come back into camp. Now, the difference between Africa and going to other camps is you're sitting there with maybe eight to 10 people and every day people are bringing back animals. Okay. Because there's so many animals over there and you're hunting on thousands of acres. You have a really good success rate. It's a lot different than going to Saskatchewan camp where it might take three days for one buck to come in and there's eight guys. So you're on this thing and everybody wants to go over and look at it. And you want over at the skinning shed. It's my favorite place. I put a little fire in at the skinning shed and sit there and watch these guys skin because it's absolutely brilliant to see how fast and how clean they are. They're surgeons when it comes to this. The, the, the trackers are amazing and the professional hunters. So they come in and they want to show the biggest. And, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get in the record books. And I tell people it's not about the record book. It's not about this. It's about how you did it. And I have a lot of talks with people. It's about how you did it. Like one time. I shot a water buck. It was a monster. But you know what the coolest part about this was? The, the, the pH goes, Tommy, put your gun on my shoulder. Because it was like a 400-yard shot. He's like, it's your only rest we have. He held his ear. I put it on the other side of your shoulder. He goes, fire, boom. And we took a shot, you know? And, and I got that animal <laughs> because he allowed me to do what I had to do at that time to be able to make it happen. Okay? And it's all about the experience, you know? He, he helped me, set me up in a way that I was allowed to steady myself um, and everything. And this is what you have to do. Whatever it takes to get that animal, you do. Okay? And that's what it's all about. It's not about the size. But we all, we all want good quality, mature animals. That's what we want. We want bigger. We want better. We want everything. Um, but I do think when a lot of people leave Africa, I do believe think that's all they believe in. And they, they have a really, they have the story to tell it. Um, and when you hear guys coming back from Africa, every one of those mounts, there's a story behind it. Why you did it, how you did it. Um, why did you change where you were going to go? Um, you know, they burn over there when you're sitting in a blind, they burn zebra poop 
in front of you. Um, rhino uh, poop because it throws off the scent of the blind and they'll burn that a little in front of you. And it's like all these techniques where the wind's blowing that they'll do to make sure those animals can come in and you can get a great shot on it. And they're really big on that over there. Make sure you put the right shot because they don't want to chase it for six miles and they want to make sure you're going home with it. And I've had a lot of friends that have wounded animals that they'll find them three weeks later because the ravens over there and everything, they'll, they'll find them. But um, they don't have the capes or anything. They just have the skull mounts. So to answer your question, I do think in Africa is a great place where people, it, it humbles the horn. Humbles. I would say. I was, that's a perfect word. It humbles yeah. the horn. Okay. It's not all about that. It's about that you're across the ocean hunting in an area where hunting really started. And you've, you've killed species over there that most people over here have never seen. In your opinion, what changed in our perspective of why we think big animals solidified to the idea of that's what you did when it came to hunting. Like how like, you think hundreds of years ago, I wonder if anybody really ever cared about that. And they cared like you were successful because you came home with something no, versus coming right. in with God. It's the biggest one. Thank you for the food. Like, I think like, I wonder when was the shift? Well, well not I even think, hundreds of years ago, you back yeah. to the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And it was, it was a, a food source. Antlers were great. But it was a food source, and at some point, I don't know, maybe along the lines of, of processed food and grocery stores. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, I, I do believe that. I was in Jackson Hole. I was working with a master's program when I right after college in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I went into a bar, and I saw this monster buck, and it was over 100, 110 years mouth. And it was a monster, and the guy's like, oh, yeah. Um, and, and I asked that. I said, did, why did they? And I asked that question. They said it was the turning point where – Men just went, men and women went out hunting and they did back. And it was food source. We need to shoot whatever. They could care less about the horns. A lot of times they would cut the horns off in the woods, knock them off so they could easier drag back to, to their, their cabins. So they didn't care about the horns, nothing. Um, some people would use them as different um, uh, utensils and, and stuff to, to do stuff with. But it wasn't all about that. My, my feeling is this. When it was commercialized hunting and when you sit there and you take the biggest buck's horn, you think that that species of animal, that buck is the smartest because it lasted eight years and it probably got away from a hundred hunters. And then you feel like, well, you did everything right to get that thing. And it brings your stock up in hunting. Like you're, you're a better hunter because you got that. Now, a lot of it is true. Because to get those big booner bucks and everything, you have to do a lot of things right. And when you videotape, five more things can go wrong. So mm -hmm. to a lot of these hunters out there in the woods, they are putting 30, 40, 50 days in and more to harvest one very mature buck that's, that is very elusive because it's very smart. I mean, you guys know, look at deer now. They all look up in the trees. They know where we are. You know, 30 yeah. years ago, they didn't do that. But now the, the bucks are training their, their – like the does are training deer to look up. I've seen in the woods. Um, and that it, – it is hard. It does put a lot of things – because trust me, I know a lot of people, and I've been like this as well. We always want the biggest buck. We would love to do the biggest. Um, but I think when meat wasn't 
important enough for us to live on our families, things changed. Then it went to the horn. And then it went into, you know, oh, God, I got this buck, um, you know, and it's, it's a monster. And uh, I have a great story about it. I respect so much people that show me, like on the shows, they've been watching this buck since the summertime. If you have pictures of a deer and you're going after that, and you're, you're going to put in 50, 60 days of your life to get one deer. And my wife used mm-hmm. to joke around. She said to me, she said, imagine all those days you were hunting. If maybe you did this, we could have, you could build a whole house. You know, like we were laughing all the time about all the extra time. <laughs> and uh, like they, we do put into hunting. Think about it. When you go outside, what could you guys do in 10 hours? You know, um, but you go and choose to sit in the woods in the hopes to get a buck. Um, but yeah, it, it is a great question. I, I think over the last, 20, 30 years, like when I went to hunting camps with my father up in Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania, it was just, oh my God, you got a deer, you got a spike. You were allowed to shoot a spike. Oh, you got one. And it was like a big thing. Um, and then as it got, oh, why'd you shoot that? It's only a four pointer. Why'd you shoot that next year? It's only six. Oh, I got an eight. And it started getting up where it was like, it was all about the rack. And I think because taxidermy has gotten so good that people like, you know, want to have that. And also time is short. There's a lot of guys I know that used to hunt 20, 30 days. Now they hunt two because of mm-hmm. families and everything. So they want to go somewhere to shoot a big buck. And a lot of guys out there, I mean, in my scope of friends, let me think, I have about 10 friends I've been hunting with for a long time. I think one out of the 10 of us has shot a, a buck over 170. Um, and a lot of these guys, they, they always laugh. Um, and they say, you know, next year, next year, we're going to get it. And we've been saying that for like 20 some years. Um, and, but it's, it is, it's, <laughs> you know, we all want that one buck. That's a monster that we did everything right that day. Um, so, and, and guys, I have to tell you this, like I videotaped a lot of hunters and I've seen where one cough, one sneeze, mm-hmm. one movement, where I'm back at a tree and I see a buck coming that that hunt's done that buck yep. that was coming in for one little thing. So I think it's just when you sit there with a monster in your hand, you make you feel like you did everything that right that day, you know, but that you, everything aligned for you that moment. And that's what we all try to hope that it happens to us. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of it's luck. It is, it is a lot of luck involved. Um, there's a lot of prep, but there's a lot of luck involved. Well, you were talking about something there where, you know, we're a little bit in the same boat. Um, we used to hunt a lot of them in the first year me and Travis hunted together. I, and just down here in Georgia, we hunted literally every single weekend for the entire season. And then, you know, sporadically throughout the week, we hunted a lot, um, you know, between families and work and growing up and getting older. Yeah. You, you, you end up spending a little bit less time in the woods down to, you know, the guys you're talking about who mainly spend two to five days in the woods a year. So they do, they, they look, you know, they want to go out West or they want to go, uh, up to Canada, um, or they want to go to Africa when those guys are dumb because they're, they're not, they're not cheap trips, right? I mean, no, these guys are saving up for a year, two years, three years, begging their, begging their wives to, uh, to be able to stash the money away. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, yes. it's a big thing for them to go and do that. So what are some things, and I know you've, you've got a lot of experience on this when, when they're going to look for, let's go up, they're going to go out to the Midwest to go hunt whitetails. 
and picking an outfitter, what's the what's the research? What are some do's and don'ts? What are some suggestions you have as far as trying to start narrowing that down? Because if you're going to spend, you know, 15, 2,500, 3,500, 4,500 for a five-day hunt, you know, you really want to make sure you put yourself at the right place at the right time with the right people to have the have the best chance of success. How can they how can they help stack their odds a little bit? Yeah, you, you hit on a really great thing. Uh, it's also funny because I have a lot of friends and their wives would call me and be like, Tommy, how much is this hunt really? You know, because they were, they have to save so much. And I'm like, just look on the website. I don't want to get involved. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to get involved. And then I have to call him. He's like, Tom, you know, so we've been through all that. But so here's the thing. I used to use different brokers. And you see how many years the broker has been in, in business. And I would go to a broker and he would, suggest to me what hunting camps and we did this we had a hunting show called camp stories back in the day my friends and i we we went and we did uh, africa north america and i used a, a broker because their knowledge and what if they're in business for 10 20 years you know they know where to go how many guides are turning over uh, my suggestion really and i've had this happen which was i mean I've, i can tell you a couple bad stories is we've hooked up with different outfitters and when we call for testimonials by people that went there, it turns out they were like their family members. <laughs> and, oh. you know, it's not it's not hard to find research and say, well, I'm calling everybody in the same they're in the same state, you know, like, wake up. Um, so <laughs> it really has to do with. Yeah, it was really funny. I was like, um, but and, and don't get me wrong. A couple of the hunts were good, but a couple of them were really rough because we went there. And remember, hunters, what do we really want? We want an experience with gr amazing food, okay? Hunters love to eat. We love to have a drink at yes. night and eat and enjoy campfire. That's as important as us as going out and shooting a buck. We want to get away from everything. So you want to have a really good lodge experience, personality. And my suggestion is to all these guys is do your research on the area, okay? Look at the harvest. How many deer are coming out of that area, okay? To per how many hunters, you can find all this out now. Back in the day, we couldn't do all this. Call people that went and make sure they're in different states, okay? Make sure that they're not in the same state because I've, I've messed up a few times. Um, so it's really talking to people and saying, what was your experience? And then make sure you communicate with your outfitter and make sure that outfitter is going to be your guide. Or if the outfitter has a guide for you, get them the contact number and communicate with them. The worst thing I've done in the past is I've paid $4,500 to go on an elk hunt. And when I get out there, they had all these different guides coming in. And I, and I talked to one guy. Well, it turns out he wasn't my guide. And I had another guide come in, and he was only half day. And then I had to come back and get another guy. It was terrible. Uh, I ended up shooting, um, and I'm embarrassed by it. I ended up shooting a bull that was less than like 170 points. Really, because the guy's like, it's a monster and a muzzleloader. I, I was so excited to get it. And it was, and the guy, when he came up to it, this is how bad it was. He left. He left me because he knew the oh, owner no. of the place was going to be so mad at him. Jeez. He got his pickup truck, left, and next thing you know, another guy came pick me up because it, the, the animal, it was the first day of an elk camp. And I ended up shooting something very small, which I didn't know. I was, I, I was, I was, I was new to elk hunting. So the key, what wow. everybody should do is communicate with the person you're going to be with, ask them for pictures. This is huge with technology. 
send pictures, trail cam pictures, get what should I bring? How do I do this? Look at the different moons out there. Like know your, know your information. You're spending 4,500, 3,500, no matter what you spend, 2,500. If you're going to spend that much money, you should put in 10 hours at least into doing your due diligence on everything. Make sure you have the right. So are you saying Walmart's right nearby, you know? Are you saying communicate with the outfitter or communicate with the guide that's working for the outfitter, like directly to the guide itself? Yes, is that 100%. Capable? Why not? Because oh. so what would happen is the, guy, the the outfitter, the owner of the outfitting business, he's most of the, he's a businessman most of the time. He runs an outfitting business. He might not be out in the field. He might not be the one driving you to the blind. He's not the one like hmm. he might not be the one. Some of them do be gutting the animals, doing everything you need to do. What you need to do is contact him and say, okay. And sometimes they'll give you this. They'll say, okay, there's, there's this gentleman will be in your camp. There's only three guides that are going to be in camp with you. Okay. So this is going to be your guy. And, um, and then you communicate with that person before you go. Is there a language barrier? I'm sorry. Is there, is there like a language barrier when you're speaking to, let's say if you had the opportunity to speak with the the actual guide, would there potentially be a language barrier out out in Africa, out in Africa, in Africa? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. So whoever you go with, if it's North America with everything, no, any one of your guides in South, like you in South Africa, um, with the safari club, Numzan safaris that I've been a part of for years, they will have you communicate with their person, hundred percent email, phone calls, everything. Because they also have you email if you're allergic to anything, what food you like, so they what drinks you like. They have everything in camp ahead of time. And the same with North American hunters out there. They want to know everything about you because they want you to come out, have a blast. They can't control the animals, but they can control the lodge life. The experience. And a lot of yeah. guys will go back to the lodge life the next year. They want you to have repeated customers. They want guys to fulfill the, the, fill those spots every year to come out because they know who they're getting, they know who they are and everything. They want that. So how to get that is give a great lodge experience, okay? Do everything you can do. You cannot control the sh- their, sh- like, think about it. I've had guides put some of my friends on the most amazing animals, but they missed them. Whose fault is that? It's the hunters. Uh, things happen, okay? And they know that. But their lodge experience, they came home with nothing, but their lodge experience was amazing, and they went back the next year, okay? So communicate with the person that you're going to be working with that you're that's actually be with you like um for a moose hunt you know you want to communicate with that guy because he's going to tell you if you shoot a moose there's a grizzly bear tag you can get there's a wolf tag there's a caribou you need to know all this stuff at a time to budget because you might go up there on the second day and shoot a moose and now you got 15 days left what are you going to do some guys didn't know about that ask a lot of questions okay and then what i do all the time a lot of these guides are in camp and they're in the middle of nowhere. Ask, do they need anything? I've, I've brought boots, uh, heat warmers. Ask them, what do you need? And, and this is kind of these things you do because like these guys appreciate these guides out there. They appreciate every little thing. Maybe they lost their knife. And instead of them driving two hours to go get a knife, you got, you could bring one to camp for you. I've brought range finders for guys, list of people, things for them. And it's not, it's not like a money thing. They always pay you, but most of the time you're picking up a knife, you're picking up more. You're not going to, you're not going to ask them for money. You bring it to them. You know, they're, they're out there doing all their work for you. It's a good little, you know, 
jester to bring into camp. And it's just the respect you're giving to them. Because they're whatever you think, your hours you're spending in the woods hunting, those guides out there have put hundreds and hundreds of hours in spotting anything, feeding, whatever they have to do, looking, researching, where to put you at the best spot. Because when guys, it comes you, to traveling across either the nation or let's say to Africa itself, planning out the trip, shipping your hunting equipment, mm-hmm. the gun, the bow, what's probably the best effective way of doing it to ensure that you're going to get it when you arrive? Is it better to maybe ship beforehand using a, a shipping service or would it be, is it still okay? Do you think to take it to the airport and you know checking it in? I mean, have you ever had those type of issues you had to resolve when they arrived that it didn't arrive in time? No, I, honestly, they treat a, a, any weapon, a crossbow, especially going over to Africa. There's four people that you have to go through four registrations to get it through. Um, so there's ne- I've never had an issue with a weapon. I've lost my bag, okay. um, my bag with all my clothes in it once a couple times. Oh. Um, not going so over you can to hunt, Africa, but hunt naked. But, uh, <laughs> going into Canada and stuff, and I'm running to stores trying to buy things, and then they get the bag to you. But I've never had issues with a weapon. And what South, South Africa and a lot of hunters, you can rent rifles over there to use so you don't have to bring yours over. Um, and some guys like to do that because of the hassle getting everything down and the bullets and everything. You can do that. Um, but I've never had issues with That's any of my weapons, with any of that stuff going, going anywhere uh, because there's so many different checks through that. Uh, you have to have your bold out. You have to have different permits. Like they, they don't – what the airlines – and every, they don't want to have a they don't want to have a, a rifle or any kind of weapon sitting there. They don't want the responsibility mm-hmm. of it. So they make sure that that goes through better than you've ever seen. That was actually surprising. I, for some reason, I've always had that thought that usually when people go hunting, you know, they they use their own rifle or their bow, whatever that might be the tool, especially mm-hmm. like an everyday an EDC carrying knife, like there's some sort of sentimental value that they've attached with on top of bringing it towards the hunt, killing of the animal, you know, the, the memory that they've kind of embedded towards having that weapon of choice. Mm-hmm. So to, to think yes, of renting one, weapon, it's like, it's this handed yeah. down. Yes, in North America, a lot of times when we go places, a lot of we'll bring our own a lot of times. Okay, um, the guides always have backups for us if you if you need something. But it's funny you say that because when I first started in Africa, everybody brought their own stuff. You couldn't rent rifles, everything, and then all of a sudden, like people were just you know asked, "Do you have a rifle over here? Do you have this?" And the outfitters started licensing. I mean, renting rifles to you. Because it was a lot easier and people would just, they don't have to sit in line at the airport to get their gun registered or any of that stuff. But I do agree with you. Like, I like shooting one of, my father had a, a rifle that he's had and I use that everywhere I go. And it's sentimental to me. But there, it, it is changing a little. It's, it's just like, like, for instance, um, I know people that don't have cars that just Uber every day. They just want to Uber because it's easier. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Think about it. Like, everything's easier. Instead of, like, getting up and going somewhere to get something, you just have it delivered to your house. Everything's getting easier. So having your gun that you don't have to take to the airport in Philly to get registered and then go through all the lines, it's just easier for a gun to be over there for you. So it's it's it, it's a new thing, and it's it, it, it works. So I had a trip planned before COVID hit this last July. I, I had 15 hunters going to Africa 
and we couldn't go over this year, obviously, because of the pandemic. But out of all those guys, one guy was bringing his rifle. That was it. Everybody else was renting them. Everyone. They just Jeez. didn't. Wow. I know. It's crazy, right? Like every, then now most of them were bringing bows and stuff, but they said, we're just going to rent a rifle over there. And that was it. Um, and they, they take the, like a, a couple hours in the morning, they can hour to sight it in. They know it's good. And they go and it's a 300 mag. They're used to doing the 300 mag. And then they go and do their thing. But it is funny because 10 years ago, five, even five years ago, nobody did that. They all brought their own stuff in there. They felt comfortable about it. Their thing. Now I can tell you this guys that go over to shoot big game and everything they're they bought a rifle over here, <laughs> despite what they tell their wife, how much it costs. Um, they do, they do buy a very three, seven, five, four, sixteen, and they're bringing that weapon over no matter how many lines they have to be in. They want that <laughs> rifle over there with them. I guess so. <laughs> I've been through that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, well, yeah. you know, the, the, the idea of sharing, I guess in some way, if someone's already used that gun, or whatever mm -hmm. one they might be renting while they're out there, it's almost a legacy within that gun itself that if someone's killed an animal or had the chance to harvest one, that they're adding to that tradition as well. Almost like if you ever go backpacking, sometimes the place that you might go and land on the campsite, there's that book that people write a message to. You're almost adding to that story. Correct, yes. And I've seen rifles over there that'll have um, like a notch in the stock of how many animals it t it's taken. I've seen a couple of things like that of their tradition where they'll take a picture of it with a rifle and it'll go on the wall. Yes. A hundred percent. There's a lot of that tradition going on and feeling a part of that legacy. You're, you're absolutely right. Well, it's um, so when it comes to, when you're doing more of the stuff, are you not only doing things within Africa or are you, I mean, all over the nation is there particular things that you focus more on or uh, what like which where's your main uh, point when every day when you wake up what are you usually working on well, well here's the thing what well, i have three amazing kids i have my wife we do a lot of activities with the kids and travel i get my my kids involved in hunting uh, i take them primarily duck hunting uh, because you can be with other people and it's boats i love the duck hunt it's one of my favorite things and the reason i like to is because we have so much fun when the ducks are flying at 70 miles an hour and we shoot $50 worth of ammo at it and the ducks are still going by and we none of us hit it. And we laugh at each other like, oh, my gosh, we have and you're with people. I love I really enjoy hunting with people um, unless I'm going to a hunting camp specifically for whitetail. Um, I'll sit by myself or anything, but I do like taking and building that tradition with others. And, you know, being with people, support them, bring them out there. Um, so I primarily right now, I mean, I have a couple of duck hunts that I, I, I'm next week. I'm actually going on one and we're bringing a couple, my one friend and his two kids. And we set up a, a blind and we have a great time with the kids and, uh, and everything. No technology, no phones, nothing. Everybody's got to leave it at home. We just sit out there. And what we have the kids do is they have to learn about the species of ducks ahead of time. So we give them homework that they have to learn about every species, where it comes down from, where it is, what it is, if it's a diver duck. And that's how I instill, um, you know, the hunting into my children. I really want them to focus on what it's about. It's not just about going out and shooting something. Um, so I love to whitetail hunt. I really do. I have a group of friends. We'll go to a camp once a year um, or I'll go an opening day up the mountains in Pennsylvania um, Africa is something that I were planned on next summer. If everything works 
if everything is is good with the pandemic, then we're all going over there next July. Okay, we're we're already booked and everything. Um, but guys, I have to tell you, like it's the duck hunting for me over the last 15 years and even more. It is more exciting than anything. Um, I've I've harvested multiple species. I'm going different parts in the country. Um, I'm looking forward to going to Arkansas next year and going to Maine um, to harvest different species. I really would like as many species. I've been to Canada duck hunting. Um, and you tend to, it's, it's, it's different than a whitetail camp. You know, you hunt in the morning, you come back, you nap, and then you go back out in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times with, with whitetail, they, you're out there all day. Um, but I, I do tend to like that. And my time is, is I don't have as much time as I used to. Um, a couple of years ago, I think I went hunting like maybe 10 days altogether. Um, and I was really bummed that but that's all I could get out. So that's what I really look forward to is um, I have a couple friends in Texas over the next like year or two, we'll get down there to, to harvest a lot of boars. Um, and we love doing that stuff. I'll go to Florida and I'll, I like hunting gators down there and I'll do some boar hunting down there as well. But right now it's not about me on the trigger. I love bringing people like my kids and friends that have never really harvested. I have a, I have a plenty of animals. I have, a, I have great stories. It's my job now to start bringing the next generation up to where, you know, where they need to be to appreciate the hunting space. You get what I'm saying? I think that's something that's, yeah, I think that's something that's so lost. And it goes back to what we're talking about on, you know, the size of antlers. I, I think the hunter in general, we've really got focused on the trophy aspect, you know, the, the best, the best, most expensive trip we can take or, you know, the amount of trips we can take or the amount of times, uh, the amount of time we can spend in the woods, you know, to track that specific animal and target a specific buck or what or, or bear or whatever it is you're targeting. How do we get back to and how do we, we make it more of a focus of introducing the, the next generation? Because I've, I've seen a steep drop off in, in a younger age. You know, when I was 18, 19 you know, there were a lot of 18, 19 year olds that were, that were hunting and that talked about hunting that, you know, were were going to family camps or, you know, learning how to, uh, learn how to hunt from some of their, their buddies who are 18, 19 or older brothers. I, I don't see a huge youth movement in, in hunting right now outside, outside of, uh, saddle hunters. There's, there's, there's a lot of youthful <laughs> yeah. saddle hunters, but outside, outside yeah. of that, I, I don't see a huge drive from an older generation down to that newer generation. So a lot of think think about this guy nowadays. Back, I'm 44 years old. When I was in, when I was 10, 11, you played baseball on the weekends. You had one, maybe one practice, two practices. Look how much everything has changed sports-wise, activity-wise for Mm -hmm. our kids, this generation. You know, you have practiced three, four days a week. Your weekends are taken. You know, all this, and you want to slip hunting in. Okay, you want to do that. And but but now with the activities and everything that's going on, take the pandemic out a couple of years ago, even there's just so much. My friend's son plays on four baseball teams. How do you play on four baseball teams? I played on one. You know, like, how do you do four? It's the competitiveness and sports and everything that's out there. My one friend's uh, daughter is in a band. She's in, you know, three different symphonies and she's on all this stuff. And she does dance class and gymnastics. Gymnastics is four days a week. It's, it's gotten to the point where any of these extra activities 
are now so, so there's such a commitment there and so much. And, you know, I know guys that have their daughters on three days a week sports teams and then do an extra day of another training area. So it's finding the time and making sure that you like, I make sure my kids and how I did this was, and this is like a technique that people can take or leave. I showed them videos of 150, 200 years ago of what our country looked like and what it had to do to survive. Okay. That you had to go out on a Saturday and go and go hunting. Um, I was in Alaska um, about 15 years ago and I, and there was a kid fishing and he had a tent with him. And I asked him, I said, what do you do? You have a tent here you're fishing here. What's the deal? Like you're, this is in the middle of Anchorage. And he goes, I have to catch five salmon a day or I don't go home. We live up in the mountains. And he said, and this is like 2005. He goes, if I don't catch the five, I keep them on ice and then I sleep here and I'll catch them the next morning. And that's like, I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, that, there is people, there are people out there that hunt to live. And I had to bring my children to understand that, you know, this is what you used to do. We do it for fun. Now we donate the meat, we do our stuff, but this is what our country was brought up on. Without hunting, yeah. without hunting, we wouldn't have survived. There was no grocery stores. There was nothing, you know. So we had to do that. And there was, guys, there, in, in certain states I hunted in, um, we used to donate the meat to families that were in need. And we would show up at some of these houses, and they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have grills. They had a cooler. And we would put the ice in there, and then we ended up calling – um, certain stores and some would donate refrigeration units to these people. Like all of a sudden it opened our eyes. Like these people would go out and hunt all year, whatever was in season. And they would live on that food. And that still goes in a lot of areas, but people don't get it. We're very spoiled in the sense of going down the street and getting everything. So I had to go yeah. back and say to my daughter, I said, listen, if we came back from hunting one day, and then sometimes people don't like when I, when I talk about this, but, you know, you go out hunting, we come back with nothing. Okay, we're eating bread that night. And you have to, t like, you know, that, that's what people used to do. You know, we're very fortunate. We go home, open the fridge. But it's kind of getting them back to their roots and, and teaching them that this is without what we are doing now and without good hunting, we wouldn't be here. And I've had that fight with a lot of animal rights activists. I've had issues on the plains when they would see my camo backpack. Um, and people would call me out and want to engage in a conversation about what I did. And sometimes, and this happened rarely, but there was times where I've actually sat near people and explained what I did and why. And at the end of the flight, they got it. They did. And they were like, okay, like I, I was never educated that way. And I do believe guys, the more we put it out there, educated. the more yeah. knowledge that we put out on why we do things, and why we thin populations and why how important it is to just listen you don't need that take one day and just take a walk in the woods you don't have to go hunting just take a walk you know do something get the kids in the outdoors you know well, i think and, that's where like how uh scott was trying to tap in a little earlier was like we don't really see that aspect shown and I think that's the other side of it, too. We show about the biggest animals being killed, killed, killed. Mm -hmm. And not only we see that, but also the people that are against hunting see mm -hmm. that. And that's all they see. So they're being numb 
to this, all it is is about killing. And they're not yeah. seeing, was it, what, it, what are we really doing? What is the true essence of hunting and the things that's outside of just pulling the trigger, releasing the arrow? We don't really show that enough, I think, to make people actually be aware and for either side, either against or pro. Um, we're, we're just looking at one perspective the same way. Kill, 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 instead of history. You're 100% right. Experience. experience. And remember, it's a lot of it's social media. What, what guide services? It's a business for them. They need to bring hunters in. So you're going to show every big buck you can in Instagram and, and Twitter. You're going to put everything out there for these monster bucks. Because you, I've been to shows where there was a, a guiding service that had pictures of all their deer on trail cameras. Okay? And they showed the new world record whitetail in Saskatchewan. Or no, in, uh, yeah, in Saskatchewan. The new world record, they proved it on a picture that they had it on their property. And they were selling the hunts for crazy. And they, you couldn't get in that camp, even if you tried to pay double. Turns out no one shot it, but that's what it was about. It was, it was about, like, you have a shot of shooting the biggest whitetail in, our, in the world to be the new world record at this camp. It's the way they take marketing and the way they do stuff now. Yes, everybody wants the biggest. They do want it. Um, but sometimes we have to throttle back to third year and realize that, you know, what would our grand, our grandparents would, our grandfather would slap us if he heard us talking like that. You know, go out there, enjoy it. Take my <laughs> rifle out for the day. Go harvest something. Enjoy the meat with the kids. Share it with your neighbors. Go have fun. And that's what we have to talk about more. And I, and and in doing that in Africa, I mean, I've had to talk to guys. And you'd be surprised if we laugh all the time. I have a, I have a very, I have an uncle who, he's, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's so funny, but he doesn't know his left from his right, especially during hunting. When the guy says, shoot the one on the right, he shoots the one on the left. And he was so, yeah, and, and it was like, he was so depressed in camp because he shot the small one. And I was like, I said, relax. It doesn't matter. You're going to hunt tomorrow. But he was like so bummed because everybody was ragging on him, you know, and stuff. But that's what we do in camp. We rag on each other. You know, um, my father shot an Impala once with one horn. And he said, Tommy, I swear it had two horns. And when he brought it back to camp, it was funny. And you know what he did? Everybody's ragging on him. He goes, I'm going to get it mounted with a mirror on the other side. So it half mounted. <laughs> and then it looks like two. He goes, you know, my, that was my father. My father was great. And um, he went on a lot of Africa trips with me. But um, one time my father was in camp. And none of the trackers spoke English, and he didn't know that. And we left them there for the day, and he talked to them all day. And he said, you know, a lot of these guys don't want to talk to me. <laughs> so we had, we had a lot of fun <laughs> with him. Um, and, Great and listeners. <laughs> we, we had a story once. My father, um, he, I told him, I said, he suffered a um, congestion of heart failure and a heart attack. And I said, if you really rehabilitate really well, I'm going to take you over to Africa. We're going to go to a place. You're going to love it. Well, he get he, we go to africa he's doing really good and he leaves camp once and he goes for a walk he leaves like where there's a fence area he goes for a walk well we can't find him he sat next to an anthill and took a nap and they couldn't find him. they sent trackers out with his boots to track him and they found him like right before dark so oh, the geez. next day over in africa when you're in different chalets they clean your clothes every day and you have like a little ribbon of a little thread of your color. So if it's green, it goes that shallow. The next day there was bells, little bells that were sewn into my dad's <laughs> pants so they could hear him walking anywhere he went. It was great. Uh, yeah. They're like, we're not going to lose you again. He says, um, 
But yeah, sorry guys. Uh, I, I just wanted to go back on that. It, it, it is our job and it's our duty, just like my grandmother said, to keep the tradition cooking, making homemade pasta, doing all this stuff. We just have to be disciplined to take the time to do it. Okay. And um, I have a very good friend who's a state trooper who takes his daughters out and he makes sure he budgets his schedule during hunting season to make sure that he makes that time for them. And that's what it's all about. It's our job. Well, it goes to the social media piece you're talking about. And that's, that's exactly what my perspective is. I think that we are broadcasting so much and QDM is, is, is an amazing thing. Um, people that manage properties, you know, based on age, uh, based on age of deer, size of deer. I, I love that. I think that's phenomenal, but uh, you know, youth and younger generation is so impressionable that all they're seeing is, Hey, it, it's gotta be a four and a half or you can't shoot it before it's five or it has to be a 10 point. So you have those kids now who, who, don't really get the experience of of the hunt side. They're so focused on the size of the deer, and you know all you know their, their favorite their favorite person on TV just shot a 200 inch deer. So I've got to shoot. I can't shoot anything unless it's 160. And they miss so many opportunities at that youth stage. How as as adults and as the older generation do we help not deter, but help them not be impacted and as focused on on the success of killing 160 170 a five and a half year old how do we get them to refocus and appreciate you know not I'm not saying go out and shoot every single spike but you know harvesting deer in general not just the biggest not just the oldest but going out and enjoying the actual hunt itself and not not focusing on that 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 monster trophy that everyone says they they should be hunting it, it this is great because i want to point this out i have a very good friend of mine that that took his son on a guided hunt who was only 10 years old. They hunted for years. They killed a couple small bucks, but he's like, we're going to a big because of somebody else that was at school that went somewhere and shot a monster. Well, this kid ended up shooting a 190 class whitetail out in Illinois. <laughs> okay. A, one, a 10 year old, a 10 year old. Okay. 190 class whitetail because they were in the right place, right time in the blind things happen. He paid really good money to go there, but like it was now the problem is you can't get that kid out of bed to go hunting anymore. We can't. He's like, "Ah, I'll go when I want. Now he's 14, but he's now like, he looks at his buck on the wall and that's it. And it's almost like, and my friend said to me, he goes, it's the worst thing I ever did. And he knows he did. It's almost like setting expectations for children. Hey, listen, Mm -hmm. the buck is a bonus. Forget about the buck. Let's talk about the breakfast we have with everybody going out, the fun we have in the woods. And I have my kids, like, and I've told the youth and a lot of people, I think I used to write a journal, write what you see. I don't care if you do it on your phone. You know, just do something that you see you go out and do it. But I agree with you. Remember, everybody, they want to put it on all their social media, and everybody wants to have the biggest, baddest, everything. And what I try to tell everybody, it's not about that. And no matter how many, you, you're going to have to say it a hundred times for them to grasp one time. It's not about the duck. Mm-hmm. It's not about anything else bringing it home. It's about the, you're taking the time and spending with that person out there and having a great time. That turkey, that buck, everything is a bonus. But we laugh to this day because who shoots a 190 class at 10 years old? I've never even heard of that. So, but it destroyed <laughs> that kid for hunting. Like, he's been in blind past and he has this, a big 10 point. He's like, nah, 
I'm not getting it. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, you know. So we we now realize we're you know we hope to get smarter as we get older. Is just get them out there. I remember the first time I carried my father's knife on the side of me. I was excited. Then I got to carry the gun. Then I got to do this. Like it's building that up for kids, and then having a shot. Like it doesn't matter. I, I try to tell people all the time. Don't if you shoot a buck. You know, it's up to you if you want to send pictures out to everybody, because it's just like everything else in social media. Everybody has an opinion. And a lot of guys, mm-hmm. what te- if you have a small buck and you send it, hey, I got a buck. Most people, what they send back, well, it'll eat. It'll eat. That means that they're saying to themselves, like, wow, it's a small buck. It's a small rack. Or if you if you're somewhere in and you pay money to go to camp and you shoot like a, you know, a smaller buck, a 120, 125. They're going, why did you shoot that? You paid all that money. I expect. And he's like, no, but I had such a good time. We were out there and this buck was running. Like people don't take the time to hear the story. They just see a picture and they, and they say like, oh, well, you know, it's hard to break that out of people. Cause I've done it. I mean, I've done it where my friend paid $6,000 to a Saskatchewan camp. And he sends me a picture of 130. I'm like, why? And then I hear the story and then I know why. Okay. You know, it's crazy as, uh, my son, uh, he just started hunting or getting into hunting this year. He's always wanted to see, uh, be a part of it. And he's excited to actually share what we've experienced this year. We haven't got it on uh, audio yet, but uh, mm-hmm. he's getting ready for that. And out of all the hunts I've ever done is by far the best hunt I've ever been on with him. And it wasn't a buck and it wasn't even a big doe. It was everything that led up to it that means more to me than anything else. And his memory of that is all I care about. And yep. I don't even, and he, and what's been Good. great is that he's still excited to go out and get more, get out in the woods as much as possible. And really back down to it, I didn't get a photo of it. My photo was me and him smiling. And exactly. it was like, that means more than anything. No guys, that's what it's all about. My daughter is already packed for next weekend. She has everything packed in a room ready to go. <laughs> and you know what I love? Ducks are all the same. I mean, they're, they're, they're not horns. You don't have to worry. You shoot ducks, you shoot ducks. Like, she's so excited about getting out in the blind. She's up before I am. She sets her alarm before me. And, like, she's just so excited. And that's what means to me. It has nothing to do with any horns, nothing. Just like you said, your son is so excited to get out there with you and to spend this time. And I don't think parents, people, uncles, relatives, anything, grandparent I, I at times i don't think they understand they, they take that for granted like how important it is for you just to make the time to take somebody okay make that time and tell people this date you're going to go up to the mountains with me overnight we're going to go hunting we're going to do this it takes them out of their element of every day the technology to this to worry about who has the biggest better sneakers who got this who takes it all out of that like it brings them to an area where you guys can just focus on having a good time. And you know what I love about the woods, guys? You never know. You absolutely never know what's going to happen because it's, That's true. It's, it's a clean slate. You never, like, trust me. I shot a warthog in Africa once that was over 22 years old. And the camp guide's only seen it a few times. I just was in the right place at the right time when this thing came out. And it's one of my favorite trophies of all time. It's, and it actually went into a hole and they had to dig it out of the hole because after it died, it went into the hole and we had to dig it out. But it was the coolest thing I've ever done. And everybody was like blown away. It, was a, it wasn't the biggest ever, but it was the coolest thing I've ever, I was just at the right place 
at the right time and it worked and I was shaking. And to this day, if you're not shaking out there, you should go home. Like you should, this should get you excited. It gets your blood pumping. You know, this is what it's all about. But to your point, we have to put the energy and the effort in to doing whatever it takes to just get them out into the landscape. Okay. If they say they don't want to go out, I don't, if they say they don't, I kind of work. All right, well, we're going to go out to eat after, or I'm going to go dad. And then they're out there with whatever it takes. And then they're like, wow, I really wanted to stay home. I'm glad I'm out here, you know, and it takes that little kind of salesmanship to get them out sometimes, but it's worth every penny. Well, do, so do you film any of the hunts that you do with uh, with your daughter? Oh, yeah. So we, we, we started to, um, and we have a great time at that. A lot of times like she can't she can't hunt right now. She's only 11, so she can't hold. But I'll videotape us out there and us after. I'll take pictures. And, w- and we look back at those times. We laugh about it, you know, because, guys, you know, when you're videotaping, when you hit record, so many things happen wrong. Um, I can tell you a really fast story that you guys will let, like, it was really funny, but it's also, I videotaped the gentleman in Saskatchewan who his dream was to hunt and, and to get a drop time buck. He was almost 70 years old. And I, I went up there with him and this guy had tons of pictures of drop time. So all of a sudden we're in the tree, I'm in the tree over near him. And he's over to the left of me about 20 yards in the tree. And here comes a double drop probably about 165 and I'm videotaping this and I'm like, Oh my God, this is, I this has never worked. And I look over at him and he's sitting there and he's like looking at me and I'm like, shoot. And I take my camera on him and he's crying. And I'm like, he's crying. Maybe he's over. And I can't talk to him because he's so far away. And this buck, I videotaped 17 minutes of this buck. When I come down, he forgot to load his clips. Oh my God. Oh God. Yeah. He didn't have his clips loaded. So guess what? We extended our trip another five. We spent 15 days in Saskatchewan, 15 days at that same blind, the same place. And that buck never came back. And I was in charge of the clips, by the way, after that. Um, But he, I have a great video of it. I made him a great video, but this is what happens. Things happen. Not just with the camera, with it, like things happen all the time. I felt so bad for this gentleman. That's, and I'm telling you guys, it was a buck that I've never seen before. It had a 14-inch drop on one side and 8-inch on the other, and it was a mainframe 12. It was something I've, I mean, it's amazing. And we have 17 oh. minutes of footage of it. So oh, I try to videotape as much as possible. I have missed a lot of animals because I videotaped. I have one mm-hmm. time, I thought I hit record, and I, I didn't, and I shot this really nice awesome buck in front of me and now i look back the camera's not on i'm like oh my god so and then i'm like oh well it's good to tell these stories things happen you know um but yes i try to get as much as i can with my with my kids and stuff uh just because they want to see it you know they love to look at the footage well self-filming is becoming a, a really popular thing more and more people are doing it just with little handy cams or or uh you know dropping a lot of money on camera setups and arms and microphones and seven inch screens for the top mm-hmm. what's just some basic basic info or tips or tricks that you could tell someone who who does want to get into and fil- into filming their own hunts um so what i tell people a lot of times is if they're going to do it during the hunting season practice before hunting season you're going to have to put the time in because you're going to have to know your best thing you can do is know your camera 
people out there will buy a three, four, five hundred, six hundred dollar camera, and they don't know that it shuts off after thirty seconds. They don't know how it reacts to cold weather. I've had cameras that people think that's going. So you're going to have to keep it warm, or you're going to put heat packs, or do something. Some cameras don't react. Some people in their settings. You have to know your settings. And I've done that numerous times where they threw me on a new camera, and I didn't have YouTube back then to look at it to figure out how to use this camera. I was using the directions and trying to figure it out, and I messed up a lot of times because I didn't know my my unit. So I'm going to tell you, know your camera the best. Practice in the woods. Attach it to somewhere. Have a steady camera. Um, make sure that you simulate, like put a target in front of you and simulate where you're going to put that frame where you think that buck's coming and look, does it work? Don't have it on autofocus. Okay. Do it on manual because all of a sudden when you're moving, if it catches your jacket or your elbow in the frame, it'll focus on your elbow and then you will lose your frame of the buck. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that you need to do to learn um, how to swivel it. Um, make sure you have extra batteries. Remember in the freezing cold, those batteries are going fast. Keep it in your jacket pocket to keep warm. Um, and th that's the key is you have to know your, your equipment. If you don't know, it, it's just like your bow or your rifle. You need to know it a hundred percent before you go out there. Cause if not, it's not worth it. You're going to screw up your hunt. If you don't know your, your own equipment, that's what my suggestion would be. Practice as much as possible. And you know what? A, a lot of, a lot of techniques I would do is I would go up in the tree with no weapons, no nothing, no bows, no nothing. And I'd bring the camera and I'd have somebody walk and I would just focus the camera on them and try to get them in full frame. And then I would have my kids or whatever and do it other places. Walk the dog, focus on the dog. Remember, a, a dog will do the same, uh, a lot of times movement and, and head turns and everything and see how you are and look at your footage and see what you can do better. Because you and I both know, guys, how many, how many videos have we seen where the buck's out of the frame and you see a shot and then you hear a shot, you know? Basically learn the limitations of what you can do so you know what you can use while you're in the field. Exactly. You have to know. And, you, and beforehand, when you're up in a tree ready to go, when that light comes up, videotape the area so you know if there's branches here, if there's a tree here, you have to know your surrounding. And remember, you only have 180 degrees that you really, like, really can focus on. You don't have the back of you, really. So focus on this. Do the camera. Look at the footage on there. Oh, God, if the buck comes in this way, I have to set the camera up here. Do a little work ahead of time in that tree before you actually, before the morning starts, you know, before you really get into it. But because you're going to have to get really that. Smart. And as a cameraman, it was so important. I had all that B-roll and all this stuff together. And because, guys, there was times I didn't get paid. If I videotaped somebody, I missed the shot. Like, I didn't get paid. I couldn't take the money from them. I would literally not get, I wouldn't take the money because I messed it up. So that, that's what I'm going to, I tell everybody, if you're going to do your own stuff, make sure you know your equipment, do your stuff, practice ahead of time. It's worth it. And take some shots with the camera. Most guys will take a shot um, and they realize their camera's on their rail. So if they're shooting with a gun on the rail, it's going to shake and then you miss everything. Mm -hmm. So you got to set it up where you know, do take the time, just like everything else. Take the time. If, if it, it deserves the respect that you need to give it to, for it to be a successful video. I would almost maybe put it into perspective as well as it doesn't always have to be the bigger, better, best of the equipment. 
if you're a solid filmer with a prosumer, you'll have a better quality footage than trying to find something that is the most on top of the line camera that you can't even control. Absolutely. I videotape with a $200 uh, Sony Handicap. It's awesome. It's exactly <laughs> what I need. That's all I do now with the kids. It's the best thing. I, I have, a, I have a, a swing arm. It goes right on there. And then it's so small. And I put it under my, like I can put it under my armpit and keep it warm, keep the battery, like if it's really cold out. But guess what? It's so, like, I, I used to videotape with cameras that were like rocket launchers on my shoulder. They were huge. And the deer would see them. Like, I had to camo them up and everything. I could put this little camera on there and just do what I need to do, and that's it. And the, the one thing I tried to tell everybody, if you open your camera, a lot of time it has a beeping mechanism that'll beep when it's on. Turn all the sound off. Trust me. I've had so many deer run away because they turn the camera on and the beep comes on know your equipment but like you said you could take anything but it, as long as you put the work in to know it you're good what do you use for your tree arm what uh what swing arm do you use uh, i use real tree i have a real tree swing arm it's great it's perfect it's, awesome. it's like the, the yeah it's, it's exactly what i need it holds tight it's everything and a lot of stuff i'm doing now like with the ducks i just set up like a little tripod or, or anything with the camera and you know duck hunting is if I can't hunt and videotape during duck hunt. Can't, it's not going to happen. So um, I have some really cool videos out on YouTube of St. Anne's um, up in Michigan where I did a video of us duck hunting. And when I went up there, I donated – we had three days of hunting. I donated a day and a half of just me videotaping because I knew it couldn't get a good um, video without me taking the time and doing everything in there. Um, with everybody. So it did work out really well, but you gotta, it's one or the other. It's really hard to do both. Trust me. It doesn't work <laughs> uh, <laughs> when it comes to duck hunting, when it comes to duck hunting. Well, I mean, you have so many moving targets coming from so many different directions. Um, the, just the focus piece, trying to get your shotgun up and take a, take a shot on something that's still moving. At least with a deer, you can, you can mat at him and try and get him to stop and frame. <laughs> yes, you can try. Exactly. You can try. Exactly. Try. And, and it is fun. Like when you put your camera on, I'll actually target an area where if a deer's coming on this trail or that trail, I try to, it never, maybe it happens 10 times, but you'll 10%. Uh, but you will target and get an area where you know it's perfectly in the frame. It's dead center. Right. And that's where you really want, um, obviously. But it never happens like that. It's always moving and this and that. But it's, it's trust me, I, I, my, some of my best times was videotaping my father-in-law, who was a big-time hunter and a trapper in Pennsylvania. He was awesome. Just, just old school, you know, hunt, he would hunt with a recurve if he, if he could all the time. I made him change to a compound after a while and then no crossbow. But I took him to Africa. I've taken him a lot of places. But videotaping him was just so he had so much knowledge in hunting that i would learn things every time i videotape him because he just loved he loved to be on camera um and you learn from these people like i i i enjoy every i really enjoy every minute i would spend out there with people and i would just ask them be yourself tell me a story and and uh and that that was the best times in hunting for me but going back to that guy yeah i don't know if we're ever gonna I don't know if everybody out there is going to understand that it's not all about the horn. It's not about the size of it. It's not all about this stuff. It's about that trip. Um, I don't think we'll, as you get older, there's a time when you will 
like that it won't be as important anymore and i think it just goes with maturity and age um and everything and and i think that it's our job to maybe you know a couple young hunters i know they're like no i'm targeting this bucket to 170 i'm getting in the record books i'm doing everything Uh, i'm like okay that's great i said but and you know four years later how are you making out with that oh i I didn't shoot this you know all right well maybe next year you just take this you're right and then they shoot like an eight pointer and they sent it to me and i was like you know what I love that. I said, that's, that, that works for me. I said, so. Well, talk about stories. There's something me and you had, uh, touched on in our earlier conversation when we first started talking, um, you know, hunting in Africa, we're always talking about again, that, you know, the record books, the big animals, the experience, the conservation side. And those are the stories we always hear. What are some stories uh, from over there, your time over there, that are uh, that are things that have happened that most people just don't talk about? Um, I, I would say a lot of it is, remember, I, I was very blessed to be able to go over so many times. So it wasn't all about the hunt for me. Uh, I worked with a couple of poaching groups to help uh, with areas, uh, stabilize uh, the poaching and I did a lot of work over there with food programs and irrigation programs. Over, over in South Africa, if the animals at night eat too much of the vegetation, they can't afford to harvest it. So it all goes bad and that farmer is, is done. So we would set up night hunts to take out certain animals and we would, and they would get to keep the meat of course on the plantation because, um, because it was their farm area, we would just do that. And then like, it's literally like thir- if they lost 30% of their, of their uh, plant, uh, their planting, they wouldn't, we wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to harvest it. So there was different things I got involved in over there. I was able to spend months over there at times um, where I got involved with a lot of different, not just food programs, but uh, building bridges, uh, areas that people could go across rivers safely instead of swimming with the crops. Oh God, it used to drive me crazy. I'm like, you're not swimming. These little kids would run over there. So we, I'm like, you're not doing that. Um, so there it was a lot of times of me just kind of preparing ahead of time. And I, I would have certain people that I knew donate um, funds to help different programs of their clothing. We would never leave with our clothes. We would donate everything, boots, everything we could possibly have. Um, what these people over there, the appreciation you would get if you would just help them take a half a day and help fix a pipe that a warthog chewed that now they can't get water down there. Um, so we would take the time and, and that's what I've always used. I mean, like I said, I was very blessed because I, it wasn't about the hunting for me. It, you know, it was getting over there and experience life over there and what they did every day. I follow poach. I would follow anti-poaching companies. Um, I would help with fences, uh, homes, to help build homes over there for people. Um, a lot of it. And then when I would bring friends over and stuff, if they were there for a 10, 14 day hunt, a lot, they knew I would go on for a couple of days if I was somewhere else helping and they would come with me. Um, and I, w- I liked bringing them in to, to show them different parts and why we had to go to Zimbabwe. Um, there was a, a couple animals that were dangerous game that we had to take out because over in Africa, um, if, if an animal is killing people, kids, and most time it is children because they're the easier prey, 
it has to do with an abscess in their mouth. And what happens is they can't chew the food right and they can't get it down. So we'd have to hunt that animal to take it out or the tribes or areas would poison a water hole with fertilizer and kill all of them. Mm -hmm. And if they, because they don't know which one's killing their children as they're going down to the water. So we would go over there and hunt the different game that was actually killing humans. I mean, we killed a crocodile once, and when they gutted, it had 11 human body parts in it. And it turns out the oh, croc geez. had like 19 abscesses in its teeth. I mean, it was, it was crazy, and nobody could go down to this water without this croc. Uh, it was killing people. So there's been a lot of stories and a lot of things that, that we've heard about, and then we would go and, and support with different species that we would have to take out um, because of areas that people were really scared. I mean... We don't understand that. Um, but over there, predators, leopards, lions, everything were killing dogs, killing children. And there's always a reason because a lot of these mm -hmm. animals, there's plenty of animals over there for these. They don't want to go after humans, but humans are slower than an impala. Okay. So if they're starving, <laughs> guess what they're going after, you know? So uh, it's just the, the circle of life and people talk about it over there, but this is what happens. Um, so this is what I was a part of a lot over there and I would help out and I, I wanted to be a part of it. And a lot of times I wouldn't tell my wife stories until I came home because she would be very upset with me, but I always came home, you know, I always made sure I came home, but I got involved with a lot of, um, I was blessed to have a lot of different experiences over there that could help the communities and helps uh, stabilize areas. Um, if you donate food, a lot of them parents wouldn't have to go out and poach and they take poaching over there very seriously. You're, you're in jail for a long time if you poach because those that they're not getting the money for those animals. So, and then their children are left by themselves and mm -hmm. they become drug runners or prostitution and everything over there. So to come to an area and bring food to help stabilize that the parents aren't running around trying to feed their children because guess what? You and I would do the same thing. We would do whatever we had to do for our children. Okay. It wasn't about the rhino horn. These people aren't shooting stuff for the horns or tusks. They're shooting to bring back meat so they can feed their families and their elders. Well, guess what? When we would go over there and harvest animals, we would donate all the meat to them, dry it. They would live for months on it and they appreciated everything. And there's, and you know what? We didn't, we don't have pictures of that. We don't do videos of that stuff. It was, we did it because we wanted to. There's no, you don't see a lot of that online or, or any of that. It was just something that was, it brought me back to what my mother used to do. My mother was an amazing woman. She used to drive blankets around to homeless and she used to drop blankets off to people on the street. And one night a guy threw her down and took all her blankets. And my father was like, you're not doing this again. Next morning she was up doing the same thing. You don't give up because of one bad thing. And it brought me back to like, Tommy, you have to give back and you have to make sure that other people know this. And that's how, like, it was just normal for us to make sure that everybody goes over to Africa with me, bring stuff over to give back, to leave for people, bring chocolates, bring everything. Um, donate your boots, uh, donate your clothes, anything, because they, a lot of these places, they really need it. And they don't take it to sell it. They need it. Um, I've been over there before and I gave a pair of my military boots to a gentleman. He wore them for five years. God bless him. I don't know how he wore them. He really wore those boots for five years. 
Um, he took great care of him, but that meant everything to him, you know, that I gave him my boots. So that's the kind of experience I, I had and that I try to instill on people um, because I've met people over there for missions that are just the most amazing people in this world. They're so self selfless that they do whatever they can for, for humanity. And they're sleeping on the ground, building these huts and doing, and I meet these people and I'm just blown away by their generosity and everything. And that kind of boots you as a human to say, we should all be doing something like this. Wow. What kind of work did you do specifically with uh, the anti-poaching organizations? Um, how, a lot how were you involved with them? A lot of that was patrolling different areas um, that we did because of the rhino. Um, they would they would shoot the rhinos, and it was terrible over there. They, were, they would come in at night and shoot them with twenty twos with silencers until the rhinos would die, and they would cut the horns off. And it, it, we, I've seen some horrific things. A lot of stuff was patrolling areas and a lot of poachers when they knew we were coming through or we, they would, they would, they're gone. And we've actually hired ex poachers. We call them ex poachers to track poachers because you, there's an area that I was blown away with that these gentlemen came in, they shot an animal and got it all out, skinned, did everything to it. And you couldn't see anything. There was no sign of blood, no nothing. They were just in and out overnight, and a lot of this was patrolling fence lines, um, doing everything um, to help, you know, to let the poachers know, guess what? There is, I work with different officers over there um, to say, listen, we're here, so you better just leave. Um, there was a lot of arrests made. Um, we've had to take different, we've, we've gotten a lot of different animals, and it was terrible. I mean, I was there when they burned a lot of elephants. Uh, tusks that they um, they took away from poachers. It, it was, I mean, there was a lot of things that really set in my head that I'd seen um, that that I was I was very glad I was a part of, and that I shared my stories with people and to educate them that it's not it's not all about like just going over there and hunting. There's a lot about the back end on it. Like every trophy you take over there there's a conservation fee that is used on you know, that every animal that's shot in South Africa, there's a fee on everyone that goes for anti-poaching. And those, that money is allocated to help all those areas and to hire the right people and to patrol the right areas. And a lot of it, guys, is just making sure poachers know you're there. There's you know, we've, you're pre we would, sometimes we'd make a fire in an area and we'd had poachers come up on us because they think it's a poacher fire and there's poachers in the woods that'll just come up to our fire like all nervous because they think and then they see us and they're gone you know but then they know guess what we're there and we're patrolling that area so that that's the difference is just like you know i i've met some men that have donated their lives to making sure these animals are safe and they and they thrive um, I, and a lot of them with South Africa, um, are ex military, um, a lot, like over 25 years ago, you had to be in the military two years. Um, and the, a lot of these men were ex special forces and I, I work with them and, um, it's funny. Some of them would always ask me, like if I was coming over and I was going to be in their camp, they love range finders. So it's hard to get really good range finders. So I'd bring range finders over for them or any, any kind of equipment. 
and they would tell stories of what they had to do. And a lot of them became professional hunters and they were a part of an anti-poaching. They have uh, on their CBs, they would um, say a different code and then everybody would meet at a camp and then go after an area that was, um, that was being poached. So when, yeah. I was, the question about when it comes to poaching, I've, I've always wanted to know is like, when you have the anti-poachers and they're taking that time to uh, patrol, make sure things are no, like people aren't doing things wrong. Have there, have they had that? Did they have to take lethal action to help prevent? Or is this more of just being on site was more than enough to uh, discourage a poacher to be coming around? Or were there things that had to have happened to force it so they stopped coming around? I can tell you in different countries, it's different. So uh, it, there's different experiences. A lot of times in South Africa, um, there's a, it's very organized and they have a lot of different, uh, the, the anti-poaching there has been really good where it's not lethal. A lot of times there's a lot of arrests made. Poachers won't come at, come at the guys as much. There has been situations where, yes, there, there's been a lot there that has been bad um you know uh they've exchanged uh shooting everything and in other countries as in zimbabwe and tanzania it, it gets worse in a lot of different areas so there has been you have to be really careful if there if there's poachers that are going after the tusks or the or the gorillas and stuff yes there is it is a war and you engage a lot with uh with wow. those poachers because that's their life and they're making a lot of what, what they could make on one. It could set them up for life almost. It's, it's that wow. scary over there. So they have nothing. They, it's, they have nothing to lose at times or they're commanded got- or they're commanded by another leader that says you have to do this and their family's in jeopardy or something. You have to go out and get this or your family's now is going to be in trouble. And what would you do? Have you ever, have you ever got caught in confrontation on any of those patrols? Uh, a couple of them very minor on times. Um, but yeah, we have been, and I've been a part of it, uh, in, in some ways, but a lot of it, um, it would, as soon as we get there, a lot of times it, the, the situation diffuses. I mean, it goes really fast. There's arrests made, um, there, they've also brought in helicopters at times to get guys, a lot of it is oh, wow. getting, getting to the animal and seeing if we can actually save that animal's life. There's, um, there's vets that are with us as well, and they'll come in and they'll take care of that rhino if the horn's cut off and try to save that rhino's life or anything. They will do all that. And there's a great, there's a great show. It's called Rhino Wars. And, and if you mm-hmm. look that up and you watch them on YouTube, those guys are warriors that do it. They're amazing people. And they have... Um, and they've saved uh, so many animals out there. And it just brings that, like, you know, when we, I, I've been a part of ones where we went into different camps and there's an Impala that was legally taken and the meat's hanging there. And that's poaching. You can't shoot that Impala. What are they going to do with it? They want to get it because they want to use the meat and they want to give it out to people. And then sometimes that's better than money. You know, oh, I got this. You can feed your whole family tonight. And they just have to be educated. If you, if you're going to do that, you're going to go to jail. And it's telling those guys like, stop. And most of the time they'll take the meat and they'll, because they can't prove who shot it unless you're there. And they'll just take it and be Mm -hmm. like, listen, 
Next time I come back, you're all going to jail. You're all going to jail. And then they all know, oh, God, I'm going to lose my – if they go to jail, they lose their, their job on the farm. They lose it. So mm-hmm. they know not to, not to mess with it. It's just – a lot of it's just educated. And, and listen, if you need that meat that bad, there are places you can get it. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's kind of intense. Why is it always South Africa that most people talk about and very, at least I haven't heard a lot about North. Is there a particular reason why most, at least the guides and stuff are more towards South? Is there, is it safer? Is it, well, uh, is that let, one of the reasons? Let me tell you this. It's very, South Africa is, has, now don't get me wrong. I've been to a lot of different countries over there. And, um, but South Africa has very um, organized systems in hunting billions of dollars are poured into South Africa because of hunting billions from all over <laughs> from everywhere from Europe. People come to South Africa because they do feel very safe with the government and how they patrol your guns are registered to you when you're over there. Um, they, you pay mo- a lot of money because it's managed the right way. The outfitters have to go through a lot, a lot of work and paperwork from the government to allow certain animals to be hunted. They put fences on properties. Now I've seen animals go under fences, over fences. They have to do that because of a lot of issues with people coming on the property and poaching. So they put big fences up, 2,000, 5,000. I saw a 100,000 acres fenced in once. It was amazing over there. Um, they do it right because it's extremely organized and they know, and they may, it's a really good business because they know if you go to South Africa, you could bring a lot of your kids and everything, and you just feel like you're in this camp. It's safe. Um, you hear from a lot of people. Now, don't get me wrong. There's other, there's other countries out there that are equally as safe, but South Africa, the way they do their business in hunting, it's just, it's just a lot easier. Again, we go back to this easier thing uh, for permits, getting things out. I've hunted in different countries, and we couldn't get the animals out for months. And people get nervous. Well, I spent all this money to hunt here, and now I can't because there's an issue with the border. In South Africa, no. It's very organized. You do this. The company comes in, picks your stuff. You have a better rate of getting all your stuff back and everything. So people tend to just go there because it is like the ultimate hunting area. I mean, you get the best of everything there. That's why a lot of people will, will do South Africa. I've hunted right on the border of Botswana. I've hunted in Botswana, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Mozambique. I've been to all these different areas. I had the best steak of my life in Mozambique. There was a Portugal restaurant. And when the bill came, it was $9. And I, left. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I looked at the guy and I, was, I felt like I stole from him. I ended up giving him like $40 for the steak. He didn't understand why, but I was like, listen, you need to take this. I, I, this was the best meal I've ever had. Now, everybody tells me because I was in the bush for like 30 days. No, it honestly, guys, was like one of the best steaks I ever had. Um, I had the best meal. And I said, listen, just take this. Thank you very much. And I left. It was amazing. Um, so I, I've eaten and I've been to Cape Town. I've been to a lot of different places, tourist areas and stuff as well before hunts. But, um, you know, go, going back to it, South Africa just, they, they, they figured it out. Um, the safety, the everything there. They just know what to do. Uh, Numzan Safaris, the, the company that I've been with, and they're family to me. When they come over, they stay. They know my kids. Like, we are 
Steph Swanepoel is the owner of Numzon, and I hunted with his uh, his nephew or no his brother-in-law Johan Kumbrick, and he was my first guide ever uh, in Africa. And it was and I was his first client ever, and it was just funny. We 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 just got along so well that I've I've brought so many people back to their camps because they just figured out the accommodations, everything about it. And they always have this thing, we'll make a plan. So at night they have like a whiteboard and everybody like gets together and talks about their hunts. And then they put it on the whiteboard. Okay, you're going to go here. You're going to, they create a plan every night. They look at the wind and the smoke and they just, they just, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, you're a part of this and you're just like, your adrenaline's pumping. You just don't know what to do next and you won't sleep. You'll go to bed, but you won't sleep. So I can tell you a couple of stories, guys, that when I was in Africa, I don't like going in their summertime. Okay. I don't like when it's really hot over there because there's like bees that fight over who's going to eat you and who's going to carry you away. I swear. And they're monsters. Um, I had a, um, a snake fall out of the top of my, of my chalet in the middle of the night. And I'm like, what the heck that? It was, it was a snake that fell down. Um, black mambas. I'm not into that. I like to go over during their winter time when there's less of everything. Um, because that, that stuff, I mean, they're just so like there was a cobra that went into one of the chalets and they, they told one of the kids who's nine years old, he has a stick with a razor on there. Like, go, go get the cobra out. And, um, they went and just grabbed the cobra and took him out. I'm like, Oh my gosh, imagine that over here. <laughs> so, um, every, everything yeah, over there is trying to you know? kill you. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's what that's about. <laughs> Jeez. Mm-hmm. Well, what's what what's next for you? What are you what are you doing right now? What, what's uh, what's your, your next venture? So my my ne- well my next my next adventure is obviously is taking my daughter um to, uh, taking my daughter to her duck hunt, um, uh, and then I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff with that um, with duck hunting over the next couple weeks. Um, so I'm going to get that situated and then i'm going to do a, a whitetail hunt um in pennsylvania i'm going to go with a couple friends of mine uh, upstate and we'll do a late season and so it's crossbow um and we do a late season crossbow hunt uh up there it's in january it's cold and hopefully we'll have a good shot at getting it um and and uh what i would like to and then basically i have my whole trip that i have to put together for next summer if we are able to go back into africa um, I have everybody I meet with. I do these big dinners. Everybody comes to the house. Um, and remember, they put they put like a list of species down that they want. Um, and you never know. Like when I went over there, I said I wanted these three animals. I didn't shoot any of them. I shot nine of the other ones. You never know. It's hunting. <laughs> you know, and, and, and my first trip over there, I was so excited. I was a teacher at the time. I, I was painting um, in the summertime. I was calling for painting jobs when I hit the tarmac because I spent so much money over there. I had so much fun that I was like, Oh my God, how am I going to pay for all this? Um, but that's what happens when you go over there. My, my, I tell everybody stick, get a budget together, stick to it. Have your like, you know, if you want something else or if someone's in, um, you, you'll still, you have it there, but really budget for what you feel comfortable with. Cause when you pull that trigger, you have to worry about taxidermy and this and that. There's a, there's more funds that come out personally for, to get that animal home and everything. So there's nothing worse than having a cu- And I've only had this with maybe a couple people I've taken over that get uh, really upset and worry when they come home and what their wife's going to do to them. 
because they're they shot like 15 animals and now they got twenty thousand dollars of taxidermy and you know what are they gonna do and and then in the last three days in camp they're just sitting there so depressed and i'm like relax you'll figure it out the taxidermy you could take years to do it relax i still have animals from 2015 at my friend's at my friend's taxidermy and i said listen i'll get them done when i get my basement done and he's good like that so i always tell people stick to your budget so you feel comfortable and you're not so nervous like with everything. So that's what I got. I got a couple hunts. I'm going to do a, a couple duck hunts, plan for the Africa stuff. Next year, I'm hoping to do, uh, go to Florida, do some boar hunts, and maybe Texas. It all depends on how everything goes with the COVID situation. Scott, what do you think about that episode? Have you probably noticed that we've split this up? Um, if you've heard it up to this point, I appreciate you taking the time spending with us. Um, with the next episode, it's going to be coming out soon. But, um, Scott, what what did you take from this episode? You know, Tommy, and I think I I think I said this during the and again, this is a two part episode. Listen to forty six. We got forty second, forty seven, which is the second half of the uh, the podcast coming out uh, with Tommy. But the the thing that I really took away so far in this conversation is Tommy is just such a genuine dude who's who's really focused on on one giving back to people outside of the hunting industry right and, mm-hmm. and then two really taking his life experiences his hunting experiences and passing that on to the next gen- next generation whether that's his kids or just uh, people in the community other hunters who who may not be that young generation but are, are are trying to get into hunting or understand understand what hunting really means and um i'm just i'm really I'm really glad he's that dedicated towards towards doing that. We need I, more people like that. Abso- absolutely, uh, but and uh, he's got a ton of stories. The second the second podcast, um, we go into a little bit more into uh, in his African hunts uh, and really the experiences out there with some of the conservation, some of the anti poachers, uh, anti poaching organizations that he worked with and what they saw and some of the confrontations that they that they ran into. So make sure you listen to the first half of this. Uh, go ahead and check out episode 47. Absolutely. So where can, where can, where can everyone find us? <laughs> <laughs> where, where they can find us. Okay, guys. So this is the, the most simplest thing. Uh, you probably already know if you've been listening to us and been a follower for years. And if you have, thank you so much. Absolutely. But if you have not found us before, and this is the first time either just through iTunes or a different type of platform, to find more about what we're doing and who we're bringing on, please just check out our website at mybowrush.com forward slash follow us. It's going to give you the links to each and everything that might be out there today that we think is going to be relevant that we feel we can actually contribute to um there won't be every platform but the ones that we think that we can have some time in and fun with you guys yeah big thing um go to go to the any of the platforms reach out to us something that we're really going to be focused on uh, we have a number of guests lined up who they they're probably not even from the industry and you know, they're not working in the industry they're not guides uh they're not tv tv uh hosts or any of that uh, they're just your everyday hunter who's got a, a, a great story um, and has a great experience, uh, just got into hunting or has been hunting for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, they're coming on to kind of tell their side of the story on why they hunt uh, and, and what has really got them to the point and 
become the kind of hunter that they are today. So if you have a story, if, if you want to get on and brag about brag about a, a, a buck you shot or brag about a, 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 an experience you had or talk about taking your kids into the uh, into the woods for the first time, reach out to us. We'd love to have you on. Heck, even possibly if you had an incredible failure. Absolutely. Because we learn more from that than also from the, all the successes. Sometimes failures mean more valuable when it comes to the information. 100%. So as always, you guys, thank you for listening to the Bovers podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Travis. Got an ending? Let it rip tater chip. Oh, God. <laughs> Let it rip tater chip. Okay. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks a lot.